Amen. So finally, in Psalm 40, we move from hope to the thing hoped for, from faith to sight, and from prayer to prayer's answer. And thus far, all of our Advent Psalms, Psalm 6 and Psalm 10 and Psalm 80, have been forward-looking. They have been anticipatory in nature. And we join them in their waiting, casting our eyes with the psalmists ahead, looking forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, in anticipation of Christmas Day, He comes. Our prayer answered, our faith vindicated, and our hope not disappointed. And so Psalm 40 unlike the other psalms that we treated, stands on the far side of the waiting experience. David has cried out from the midst of his troubles, and he has been heard. And he looks back upon his experience, and he reflects upon his deliverance. The Lord has answered. He says that he has inclined to me, and he has heard my cry. So this psalm is not so much about how to wait, though that element is present. It's more about the reward of waiting. How blessed, the psalmist says, is the man who has made the Lord his trust. How blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And it's that blessedness that we want to share in this Christmas. We have been patiently waiting for our salvation, the arrival of Jesus Christ, and he is very near now. And so let's begin by reading the first five verses of our psalm once again. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. This These words of the psalmist is the reward of our patient waiting. Our feet plucked up from the miry clay and planted upon the rock. A song put in our mouths and wonder in our hearts. We do not wait in vain. The Lord has made good on his promise and has given us a crown of beauty, as Isaiah says, instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Faith obtains promises, but it must patiently wait for the Lord. And this the psalmist did. He endured. I waited, he says. Rescue did not come quickly. Deliverance was a long time in coming. And in that space, the interval between prayer 
and prayer answered, there was room to falter. The greater the interval, the greater the temptation to succumb to despair. It's one thing to wait upon the Lord for hours, but another thing to wait upon Him for days and months and even years for our prayers to be heard and answered. And the longer we wait, the easier it is to give up waiting. Whether we express it or not, our hearts settle into resignation, a sad acceptance that our prayers have been turned away. And in such a state where we've waited and we feel that hope has, or that an answer has not come, in such a state we become vulnerable, dangerously vulnerable, to turning elsewhere for answers. Rather than waiting upon the Lord with our eyes fixed ahead, we become despondent and begin to look to the right and to the left. And really, there are few things more dangerous than hope seemingly turned away, than faith seemingly disappointed. But through divine aid, the psalmist never completely succumbed to despair. It seems likely that he had his days, moments and even seasons where his trust waned, and he became impatient in his waiting. But, as the psalm tells us, he always came back around. Though he had opportunity to turn aside, he kept on the straight and narrow. He kept waiting. He says in verse 4, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust, trust, and listen, and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. So in that long interval between prayer and prayer answered, he did not turn aside to the proud, nor lapse into falsehood. And we, in our time of waiting, are called to a similarly courageous faith. Now, such temptations, turning aside, become real possibilities. Scenarios that we contemplate in our heart when despair overcomes faith. It reminds us of another psalmist, Asaph. In Psalm 73, he recalls his own experience. Verses 2 and 3, he says, But as for me... My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so Asaph, he endures constant hardship and trial, but the wicked, they prosper and seem to know only happiness and ease. And it seems at least as far as Asaph can judge, that there is no reward for righteousness and that there is no reward for waiting patiently upon the Lord. And who among us, if we are honest, has not been in Asaph's position one time or another? We think to ourselves in the secret counsels of our hearts, it would be better to go along with the rest of them, 
to give up this life of faith and righteousness and do as the world does. It's a tempting question that at times rattles through our minds, but something others have actually followed through on. They have turned aside from humility to live a life among the proud. They have forsaken truth to associate with those who lapse into falsehood. And of course, we don't disdain them, but we mourn them, knowing all too well that the same weakness, the same temptation lies within us. But the psalmist has come through the dark night of the soul. And he stands on the other side of things, looking back, and he encourages us to keep the faith. Again, he says, how blessed, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. The one who didn't turn aside, how blessed is that one? After so long a time, after our faith has been sufficiently tried, it will be rewarded with blessedness. David's waiting upon the Lord is not in vain, and neither is ours. The Lord will make it good. Most assuredly, He will make it good because He has already made so many of His promises good. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Surely, the Lord will make it good, and he already has. The phrase that is so common throughout the scriptures. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, whoever waits upon him, will not be disappointed. We do not wait upon the Lord in vain. Now on this, John Calvin speaks eloquently. He says, although God may not forthwith appear for our help, but rather of design keep us in suspense and perplexity, Yet we must not lose courage, inasmuch as faith is not thoroughly tried except by long endurance. God may succor us more slowly than we desire, but when he seems to take no notice of our condition, or, if we might speak so, when he seems to be inactive or to sleep, this is totally different from deceit. For if we are enabled by the invincible strength and power of faith to endure, the fitting season of our deliverance will at length arrive. So the encouragement is this. Do not turn aside. Do not turn aside to the proud or go along with those who lapse into falsehood, but keep the faith and endure. Though man may fail you, though the church may disappoint you, though everything around you seem to be against you, the Lord will please your, plead your cause and make his promise good in due time. You cannot wait upon the Lord in vain. All those who trust in him will not be disappointed. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. 
He will make it good. And at last, the psalmist is answered in his waiting. He's brought up from the pit of destruction and the miry clay, and he's planted upon a rock. And he's given a new song to sing, and he says in verse 5, I don't have up there. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. So here the psalmist speaks as one who has reached the end of the long road and cast his eyes backward on the arduous journey of faith. He's on the far side of the waiting process, and he looks back. And his former struggle, the source of so much anxiety and turmoil, the source of so much questioning and pain in his life, is viewed now on the far side of it in an entirely different light after deliverance has come. A fresh perspective has been cast on the whole event. His faith, his waiting upon the Lord has been vindicated, and he's come to understand now what he could not understand before, and that is the wisdom of the Lord's plan and his tender care in the midst of it. What he could only attain fleetingly by faith in the midst of his troubles is here on the far side of them presented in the light of day. Throughout it all, The Lord was always with him, and he had never left his side. The Lord's thoughts, he says, indicating his care and sympathy, as we might say to a loved one, you are always in my thoughts, David says, are too numerous to count. The Lord never turned aside from him. Mercy and grace never had forsaken him. The only difference now is that he can recognize it. He sees it. He sees the Lord's plan and his presence there with him. Again, it's quite similar to Asaph's recognition after his own trial of faith. He says in Psalm 73, verses 21 and 24, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He didn't understand, right? He couldn't make sense of it. Then he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand, and with your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. So take courage, no matter your circumstance, no matter what it is that surrounds you, even if it be your own sin, the Lord is continually with you and holds you by your right hand more firmly than you know. And so the psalmist looks back on the Lord's dealings with him and he can say only one thing. Many, O Lord, many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done. So through it all, Right, David's struggling with his faith, struggling, God, where are you? Why haven't you answered me? Are, are you the God that I've come to trust in? Is all this true? 
He struggles through this journey of faith, and then he comes on the other side, and this is all he can say. He's a God of wonders. So through it all, God has proved himself to be a God of wonders. And when this long journey of faith is over, our long journey of faith is over, right? When we come to the end of our waiting, when Jesus has returned on the last day to gather in the harvest, those same words will be on our lips and in our hearts, right? No matter what we've been through, no matter what we faced, we'll say those same words. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. We'll look back on the hard journey and praise the Lord. So till then, till then, let us emulate the faith of those who have gone before us. Hebrews chapter 11. And these died in faith without receiving the promises. Listen to that. They died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so we recognize that the real answer to our prayers comes not in this age, but in the age to come, when Jesus returns in glory. That's the end of our waiting. And so, like our forefathers, the patriarchs and the matriarchs who have gone before us, let us also be resolved to die in faith. We will undoubtedly receive small answers in this life. But not the big answer, not the one we're really looking for. That comes when Jesus arrives. So let us be resolved to die in faith. Let us say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know whom I believed, and I know that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. So we're strangers and exiles in this world. And and we don't look longingly back on the world from which we've come, the world that we've set out from. But instead, with our hand to the plow, looking only ahead, we look expectantly to the world ahead, our heavenly country. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. So thus far, we've touched upon Advent only briefly, coming near it in theme, but not in name. But here, in the transition from verse 5 to verse 6 and beyond, that changes. Psalm 40 becomes explicitly, shockingly, about the season that we celebrate about Jesus Christ. The psalm takes an unexpected turn that causes it to be read in in an entirely new light. It reads, verses uh, 6 through 8, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. 
In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So allow me to ask a simple question about those verses. Who is speaking in those words? Whose voice is that? Now, common sense tells us that it's David, the psalmist. And surely that's true. But there's another voice speaking in these words. The primary voice, in fact, and it's Jesus. That's a little startling to say that somehow these words, authored long before his advent, are indeed his, but it's true. Look with me at how the unknown author of Hebrews interprets this passage. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. So David slips into the background and the true psalmist is identified. Jesus our Lord. When he, that is the son, comes into the world, he says, and then the author of Hebrews goes on to quote our passage. In short, the words of Psalm 40, in their entirety, I believe, are the words of Jesus. This is his voice, prophetically inspired before his incarnation, anticipating his incarnation. Charles Spurgeon, in his wonderful sermon on this passage, said thus, Here we enter upon one of the most wonderful passages in the whole of the Old Testament, a passage in which the incarnate Son of God is seen, not through a glass darkly, but as it were face to face. Declared to us ahead of time. So how can this be? Well, David, remember, was a prophet and not merely a king. Supernatural insight was given to him to prefigure and foretell and anticipate the coming one. And there is a certain logic and scheme at work here, and surely I don't want to oversimplify things, but an explanation is really quite simple. In the Spirit, David is allowed to overhear, however we might understand that, whether he understood it or not, a conversation in the eternal councils of the Trinity, a dialogue between the Father and the Son. Matthew Bates, in his fine book, The Birth of the Trinity, which is, in fact, all about this way of reading Scripture, puts it this way. The very, the very earliest Christians were convinced a few special humans in the past had, in fact, obtained an otherworldly glimpse into divine affairs, the ancient Hebrew prophets. For the first Christians, these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, and others, were in fact able to climb through a divinely ordained tear between heaven and earth in order to overhear and report certain celestial conversations. Now the fancy term for this kind of reading, that which the author of Hebrews employs, is prosopological exegesis. Use that one at your next Bible study. It's simply a way of reading the scripture that asks 
the question, who is speaking? Who is speaking? And if we were to go to Psalm 40 and do ask that question, who's speaking? There's hints right there. Behold, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me that it's not David speaking, but someone far greater than David. And surprisingly, there are a number of Old Testament passages that the New Testament authors identify specifically as Jesus' own words. Not least among them, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 2. Psalm 16. Isaiah 50. Psalm 69. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Among many others. The scriptures, the New Testament scriptures report those as the words, in fact, of Jesus. So the Bible is a strange and mysterious place. But here in our passage, we have the Son's words addressed to the Father. Think about that. The Son's words addressed to the Father prior to his incarnation. We get a glimpse into his heart. And so the Father gives the Son our humanity, and the Son says, A body you have prepared for me. And the Son gives that very same body back to the Father in obedience and says, I have come to do your will, O God. And so this psalm is about the Son's incarnation, the body that was given to him, and his obedience to the end, I have come to do your will. It's about the incarnation and the obedience that answers our Advent prayers and hopes for redemption. The Son came among us, that is, He became one of us, to bear us back to God in obedience. The Father gives the Son our humanity, and the Son gives it back to the Father, and of course, us with His gift. And so having identified the true speaker of these words, a new light is cast on the entire passage. We're sent back to reread the psalm, but this time as the words of our Lord Jesus. We'll come to that in a minute. But elsewhere in Scripture, we're taught that Jesus is our high priest, and that by virtue of him becoming a human like us. The Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So, in being made like us in all things, that is, the entirety of our human experience, its joy and its despair, its beauty and its horror, its openness to God's presence and its utterly God-forsakenness, Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He was not a superman striding over the pain and anxiety of human life with ease, but he was an actual man who shared in our lives to the utmost And so there is not a situation or trauma that we come upon in our lives, a facet of human experience, that he, Jesus, has not already tasted and walked through. 
Jesus came to us to enter into complete solidarity with the human race. To take our burdens and to bear them upon our shoulder, on his shoulders. Surely, our griefs he himself bore, the prophet says, and our sorrows he carried. Our experience is not unknown to him. A thing that he's unable to relate to, but in a very real sense, our experience is more his than ours. He bore the griefs and the sorrows of all humanity to the very extremity. Now, the ancient proverb in the book of Proverbs says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. And that's true, but not in Jesus' case. He knows every heart's bitterness. It's rather the bitterness that he tasted on the cross that we will never know. And yet, he chooses to share his joy with us. So truly, our Lord Jesus came among us to share in our lonesome experience that he might sympathize with us. But more truly, that he might save and redeem us. He declares his mission to the Father, Behold, I come. And the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. He has come to tread our sin-torn path, but without fault or failure. All the way, maintaining perfect trust and obedience to the end. And that is our salvation. And such is what we find in our passage. Here now, Jesus' words. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. We have been waiting for Jesus to come. And little did we realize, He has come to wait with us, to enter into our waiting, and to take it upon himself. Our experience that we've detailed over the past weeks, that struggle of faith, living in a world that's broken, that is estranged from God, trying to find him through trust and obedience, that is also Jesus' experience. If he is to be our high priest the one who holds together our crumbling faith, it must be so. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. He cannot save us and be something other than us. Jesus must save us humanly, as a human. And so he too, in the days of his pilgrimage, waited upon the Lord to hear and answer his prayers. Again, the author of Hebrews says, In that amazing chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Let me read that again. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. What a marvel it is that Jesus should have to cry as we do. 
wait as we do and should receive the Father's help after the same process of faith and pleading as we do. Jesus, our high priest, the incarnate Lord, enters into our waiting and waits for us, waits on our behalf, offering himself up to the Father in unrelenting prayer, in perfect trust and patience. Behold, I come. I delight to do your will, O my God. And we continue now in uh, verses 1 through 3. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And so what do these words tell us? That, but that Jesus waited upon the Father to the point of death, even in death and beyond death. His trust in the Father was true to the uttermost. And so where our faith faltered, where it does falter, where the circumstances overcome our trust, where the long stretch of endurance wears us out and it causes us to doubt and to to disbelieve, Jesus maintained faith. He answered back to the Father the word of complete dependence and reliance that we could not. When our faith crumbled, his hailed. Again, he was tempted in all things as we are, tempted to doubt, tempted to give up waiting, yet without sin. He is triumphant in patience and faith on our behalf. As Spurgeon says, Again, in his sermon on this passage, Job on the dunghill does not equal Jesus on the cross. The Christ of God wears the imperial crown among the patient. And the reward of Jesus' perfect patience is resurrection. He brought me out of the pit of destruction. Whereas in David's case, those words are true only metaphorically. In Jesus' case, they're true literally. He went down into the very real pit of destruction that he might taste death for everyone, the scripture says. And but there, even in Sheol, even in the realm of the dead, his faithful prayer rose up to the Father and was answered. Indeed, what were some of his last words on earth? The last words that the Gospel of Luke records. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted to the end. He didn't break faith. And his unfaltering trust, his perfect patience upon the Lord, could not go unanswered by the Father. Thus the Father brought him up from the pit, and he set him upon the rock. A new song was put in his mouth, and his deliverance was made plain for all to see. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And truly, A multitude that no one can number will see the sorrows and triumphs of Jesus. They will fear because of their rejection of him. And then through grace, they will be granted faith to learn to trust in the Lord. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. 
And so see Jesus and his entire messianic mission prefigured in this psalm. Incarnation, death, and resurrection, all permeated with his unwavering faith and patience on our behalf. So what then do we learn from Jesus, the one who is triumphant in his patient waiting? Well, he's our high priest, as we've said. We're reminded that it's not our faith that sustains us. Surely it will fail. It's his faith that sustains us. Jesus waited, remember, in our place, on our behalf. He came to us to wait with us, and in his mighty faith, he bore us back to the Father. And so when our prayer fails, that is when our, or rather when we grow weary and faint-hearted in waiting, when our faith is brought to the brink and ready to crumble, we're reminded that there is an eternal prayer, a mighty prayer that undergirds ours, that holds us up. You remember Jesus' words shortly before Peter denied him. Luke twenty-two thirty-one and 32, Simon, Simon, Jesus said, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. We are sustained by another's faith. We are held up by another's prayer. And so, together, we find ourselves not merely in the long interval between our personal prayer and awaiting its answer, but the long interval of the entire world's prayer and the answer that it awaits. It's the waiting between Jesus' once and future coming, that which we celebrate and that which we look forward to. And the destination seems far away indeed, and our hearts doubt sometimes if we'll even make it, if our faith will hold, but It will hold, and we shall make it. Jesus' patient waiting assures that ours will not be in vain. The answer given to his faith, he inclined and heard my cry, is the guarantee that ours too will be heard. The song of resurrection and vindication put in his heart is the evidence that it will too be put in our hearts. First, the first fruits and then the harvest. We shall see Jesus' shining face 